This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Black History Month is all wrapped up, but that doesn't mean the conversation has to end. Chad Dion Lassiter is a national expert in the field of American race relations, and he's the executive director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. He's here to tell us how we can keep that conversation going. We need to fundamentally push back against those who think that Black History Month is just for February. Our newsmaker this week features a family from Bucks County who wanted to make a movie about a black fairy tale. They did it, and we'll tell you all about it. We wanted to flip the narrative completely. Antoinette Lee has our Changemaker of the Week. It's a half hour you don't want to miss, and it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Well, Black History Month has wrapped up, but I like to say that every month is Black History Month, as it is American history as well. So if you've been taking in cultural events, visiting Black-owned businesses, reading and studying Black history figures, feel free to keep that going. And here to actually help us keep that conversation going is Chad Dion Lassiter. He is a national expert in the field of American race relations, and he's executive director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, February is too short, (laughs) right? So we definitely need to keep the conversation going. Let's talk all year long. What do you what do you say about that? I'm all for it. Um, I think when we go back to uh, the founder of what was then called Negro History Week, Carter G. Woodson, who wrote the seminal work, work, Miseducation of the Negro, his whole goal was to just highlight uh, African-Americans, we were Negroes at that time, but African-Americans from a strength-based perspective, right? To tell our story as it relates to inventions that we embarked upon, to tell the story beyond, you know, the story that is typically told, which is that of slavery. And that's why, you know, this month, but throughout the year is very important because we learn of people like John Hope Franklin and uh, his seminal work uh, in the book From Slavery to Freedom, where he talks about prior to slavery, you had the Ghana dynasty, you had the Songhai Ghana dynasty, and you had the Mali dynasty. And so our history does not start with slavery. Uh, when you think about Imhotep, uh, the father of mathematics and medicine. And so also we need to fundamentally push back against those who think that 
uh, Black History Month is just for February. Black History Month and Black people are part of the American experiment. We have given America its very soul, uh, thinking about W.E.B. Du Bois in this very moment. And so I think that, you know, we traditionally look at it from a February perspective and, you know, not all of us, but some of us, we close down after that, but it's 365 days. Uh, it's part of the American landscape and our democracy. Absolutely. And of course, Black history is more than just, you know, inventors and enslaved people. Uh, it seems as though we've done a pretty good job of moving beyond that and having conversations of, of greater importance and and of more contributions. Certainly, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's an opportunity for us to look at, uh, from a poetry perspective, Nikki Giovanni, Maya Angelou, uh, Phyllis Wheatley, uh, even in the contemporary age, um, so many great poets uh, here in the city of Philadelphia we know we have Sonia Sanchez, but equally impressive, we have Ursula Rucker and Erica, uh, Jessica Care Moore and multiple others. I'm glad that you, you know, framed it from a perspective of not just looking at inventions, but we, we've been in uh, multiple spaces. When you think about W.E.B. Du Bois, the first African-American to get a PhD from Harvard University, uh, penned the Philadelphia Negro, the first sociological study of its kind uh, in the country, looking at black life, uh, he also, uh, you know, did the Philadelphia Negro, he did uh, Souls of Black Folk. We're looking at historical universities, right? You know, in this era because of, you know, Kamala Harris and, and you know, Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock, and rightfully so, we're looking at uh, HBCUs matter. They all have always mattered. You know, I went to an HBCU. I'm a proud graduate of Johnson C. Smith University uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and so we have lots of wonderful HBCUs. And our contributions, to your point, is, is very vast. And so beyond inventions, when we look at uh, some of the struggles that we've had to overcome, right? We've had to, as a people, no matter what month we're in, we have always been faced with white, white violence, white rage. Uh, we oftentimes want to talk about you know, things uh, from a perspective of, oh, that happened a long time ago. But when we look at the mere fact that uh, February 26th, uh, will mark the 10th year anniversary of the killing of Trayvon Martin. Oh, wow. um, we yeah. just got the verdict uh, most recently, uh, just the other day, uh, in the Ahmad Arbery uh, federal uh, hate crime, uh, uh, you know, results. And so, you know, we're we're a people that have been uh, under attack, but we're a beautiful people. We're a resilient people. And once again, we give the what I call CPR to America, which is cultural pride reinforcement. I like that. I definitely like that. Tell me more about your work in race relations. I know you've studied this in different countries, and I'm especially interested in what America has in common with other countries when it, where it comes to race relations. How do we stack up against other countries in that respect? Well, great question. I'll, I'll, I'll start with uh, my experiences in Norway. Um, I started a Black Lives Matter uh, chapter in Norway at a very prestigious uh, middle school um, because I had been talking about um, how do you get back to a sense of normalcy uh, on a uh, podcast show that Mark Lamont Hill had um, when he was on Huffington Post. And so uh, the principal, or I guess over in Norway, they call it the chancellor in Bergen, Norway, reached out to me and said, hey, I would love for you to come and talk to my students about you know, the killing of Mike Brown. And so uh, that started uh, the partnership over in, in Norway. And so while over in Norway, 
Um, I had to be reminded that, you know, uh, outside of America, those, the places that you visit, um, they also have forms of white supremacy. They're not absent and void of forms of white supremacy. Uh, Germany, uh, you know, parts of Europe, uh, you know, China. Um, and so one of the things that when we stack up is that certainly uh, when working with those young people, uh, and I've been to Norway four times, mm -hmm. um, the young people wanted to know what is it about the black skin, our pigmentation that leads to state-sanctioned violence. And these are really advanced young people, right? So for me, no generalizing or stereotyping, their eighth and ninth graders felt like I was at an undergrad class, like the questions that they would ask, you know, like, you know, they were forecasting over there um, that Donald Trump was going to be the president of the United States before he became the president of the United States, given the themes of hatred. And so uh, when you take a look at you know, where we are around the country, I think that we have a lot of data that points to, you know, uh, we're not embraced by all. I think that, you know, we continue. The thing that we have going for us is that we get to provide the narrative around assimilation, acculturation, and Anglo conformity, right? So, you know, we have our signs and symbols and we believe in our signs and symbols. And so, you know, when you step outside of America, people are just like, wait a minute, that young man, he took a knee uh, against the anthology of police brutality. He didn't take a need to diss uh, the flag, right? But in America, we control the narrative, right? And so Derek Chauvin's knee took the life of George Floyd. Colin Kaepernick's knee was in silent protest because he met with a person who served in the American Armed Services who said, hey, listen, instead of sitting on the bench, why don't you take a knee? And then what we do is we allow the whitewashing of our history as if you know, these things don't occur. Uh, when I was over in Africa, I was talking to a, a tribalsman uh, at the door of no return. And we were talking about the first, I think, 10 or so presidents of the United States that owned slaves. You know, here we are at the door of no re return. I'm weeping because this is where, you know, our ancestors uh, left and entered into the horrific original sin, uh, which was slavery. And, you know, Brother Sharif Nijai, he and I are talking and he's just like, yo, brother Chad, you know, in America, you guys, you think Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings had a, a love affair. Here, here we, we understand that's statutory rape, you know? And I'm like, well, in America, we see it that way as well. But once again, if you're not black or brown, you know, the narrative is, no, no, he loved her. Right. Not at the age that she was. And so, you know, outside of the country, um, I can say that the places I've gone to, I've worked on peace, and poverty-related issues. Uh, in Africa, uh, I was working on female genitalia mutilation. Uh, that was an eye-opening experience, working with individuals there. In Canada, I was working with Native American uh, indigenous people, and you know why they maladaptively cope with alcoholism and things of that nature, because of how they've been treated. And so all these experiences uh, have provided me an opportunity um, to you know, formulate uh, expert opinions, not just, you know, living in the space of being like a, a social media keyboard activist. Mm -hmm. um, and then my training coming out of the Black church, uh, my church here in Philadelphia is, is Triumph Baptist Church. Uh, I've been mentored by uh, Dr. James S. Hall Jr. Uh, my pastor actually integrated uh, the libraries in Greenville and Marion, South Carolina. He served as the mentor of Jesse Jackson before Jesse Jackson meets Martin Luther King. 
and he was a, a close and dear friend uh, in the social justice movement with Jackie Robinson as they integrated uh, the airports uh, in Greenville, South Carolina. And I might add his wife also, may she rest in peace, uh, Miss Elizabeth Hall uh, was, was part and partial of the social justice movement in the South uh, as they worked in tandem with Jim Clyburn uh, and multiple others. And so it's in me to uh, serve all humanity, but uh, I make no mistake that uh, serving Black humanity is very important because of the pathology that people try to paint uh, for us. Uh, growing up in North Philadelphia, I went to Ollie High. I'm 6'6". Six, six. My mom and dad never said, you need to play basketball to get us out of North Philadelphia. My mom and dad said, you need to recognize books come before basketball. And so books like uh, The Souls of Black Folk, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, um, you know, Roots, uh, these that cry the beloved country, the Bible, <laughs> these things were, were part of my childhood. So I knew in high school as early as ninth grade who Jimmy Baldwin was, who Ralph Ellison was. You know, I knew who Langston Hughes was. Um, I will say though, I didn't know um, until after I got out of high school that Lincoln University had produced uh, Thurgood Marshall and so many other exemplary individuals. Let's move on and talk about the correlation between poverty and race issues. I'm assuming that there are some correlations, and especially as you you know look at other countries and you look at the United States, and we can even just look at Philadelphia being the most impoverished in the U.S. What's that correlation there? What's that about? Definitely there's a correlation, and I think it starts with the triple evils that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about, and those triple evils being militarism, uh, poverty, uh, and racism. Um, and we still have in this very moment uh, that you and I are in this space of the triple evils. We know that there's environmental uh, injustice. We know that there's economic injustice. Most of our educational systems are akin to an American apartheid system. We have uh, two types of people in the society. We have the elites and we have we the people. And what oftentimes occurs is that we are blinded by the fact that the elites are really marginalizing and oppressing the uh, we the people. When you think about the owner of Amazon, not taking a shot at him, but a person with that much wealth, right? When we think about Philadelphia, uh, we think that the recent aspect of uh, deprivation and poverty is something that just emerged. Others know that this has been something that has been protracted. There is a historical trajectory that is, goes back about four, maybe five decades where industry has gone away. A lot of my family uh, were able to lift themselves out of poverty because they worked at the United States Postal Service. They worked at Bud's. They worked at several plants in the city of Philadelphia. And so here we have, it's disgraceful uh, in the city of Philadelphia uh, under failed leadership and misleadership that we have the rates of poverty that we have. Um, you juxtapose that correlation with the lack of education that we oftentimes talk about uh, dropout rates, but there's also pushout rates. Uh, oftentimes the, the curriculums are not culturally relevant for black or brown students. They don't see themselves in the pages. Um, we're not using pedagogy uh, in a way that it could be bent towards justice. And what I mean by that is like, you know, teaching uh, literacy through utilizing hip hop, right? Young people are in, in classrooms that we're teaching to the test, right? They're on, they're, it's almost likened to a metaphor of a white collar factory 
we're black and brown. And I might ask some white students are on a conveyor belt. They're coming out with limited skills to compete in the global market economy. Yeah, you have Central High. Yeah, you have Masterman. Yeah, you have uh, Girls High and these other schools. But I can tell you, I graduated once again from Only in 1990. And, you know, they didn't have me in, in classes that uh, highlighted my intellectual property, my intellectual curiosity. It was my mom and dad who in ninth grade came up to the school and wanted to know why I was taking home economics, wood shop, and courses like that. And it's because I was on the junior varsity team and the African-American coach, he saw me as a commodity. He was like, well, I want to keep him eligible. And my mom said, oh, in our household, he'll still he'll stay eligible if he's taking geography, world history, if he's taking English. And so it's then where my mom and dad said, no more basketball for you. And then I started taking, you know, advanced English and learning about Shakespeare and learning about, you know, some of the great works of some of our African-Americans. And so I think to your point, when we see the lack of education, we see a broken educational system against the backdrop of limited jobs, um, you know, the racism in the trades industry that doesn't allow for, you know, entry, let alone ascension, you know, that's a form of institutional racism, which is prejudice plus power. So all of it is a, a recipe for disaster or what one of my mentors, Cornell West and Race Matters calls nihilism, which is despair. And so we, we're looking at people and we're just like, wow, the crime is out of control. Well, there's a lot of nihilism. There's a lot of despair. There's a lot of people who are hurt. They see their mothers, their fathers, their grandparents, they see their aunts, their uncles go out and apply for five, 10, 15 jobs and get turned down. They see uh, the challenges of mass incarceration where a lot of our family members were locked up for you know, crack cocaine and our white colleagues with powder cocaine didn't see the same amount of time. So, you know, it's a challenge, um, let alone all of this that that plays on your mental health as well. You mentioned <laughs> white nationalism uh, early on in the discussion. And um, I want to mention that you did launch something called No Hate in Your State Town Hall, which, of course, addresses white nationalism. Where is that movement right now? I think we all saw a resurgence of it, or at least it became a little bit more visible with our former president, the insurrection on the Capitol was another eye-opening uh, issue for all of us. And should I have even put that in the same space as the insurrection? I think you sh certainly should have put it in the um, same space as the insurrection. And as we're talking about uh, Black History Month um, and how it's not just a month, but it's essential for people to recognize that um, we can never forget the four young African-American precious young ladies who got up that morning, I would imagine not to sensationalize it um, for your listening audience, um, had breakfast as they typically would have always done and headed out uh, to church uh, and lost their lives uh, because of white supremacy um, in a Sunday school class. We can't forget about the black freedom riders uh, on all sides of the color line, um, our Jewish brothers and sisters and white brothers and sisters who lost their lives, and all they were trying to do is register Black people uh, for something that should have been their right under the Constitution, the right to vote. And so uh, America has always had a white supremacy problem, a white nationalist problem. Um, and for your listening audience, I love America in the same tradition that Martin Luther King loved America. And, and so I'm not putting America down. I'm not being divisive in my comments. I'm just simply stating a historical fact. 
And so when we look at the January uh, 6th insurrection, um, we have some white Republicans who want to say, ah, it really was not that. And we know that if you juxtapose that with, you know, Native American indigenous people and some of the challenges that they had with the Dakota pipeline, they were seen, meaning the Native American indigenous people, as agitators. If Black Lives Matter was to end up coming down to the Capitol, uh, well, I remember uh, coming out of a Christian tradition, my mom, my family didn't know whether or not they wanted me to go to the Million Man March, a peaceful protest, and it felt like we were under siege. And so when we're looking at uh, the white nationalism that has swept the country, Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us. And here's the thing about the, the white arrogance of those individuals in Charlottesville. They didn't have the historical hoods like the Ku Klux Klan. If we were to run an aggregate as it relates to their occupations, they were our doctors, our lawyers, our Sunday school teachers. They were college professors, college students. These were everyday people, right? And, and we saw just the vitriol. And it's not on the so shoulders simply of Donald Trump. We've seen it with Sarah Palin, Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, uh, Bill O'Reilly, and the Tea Party. And when we look at the Tea Party from a historical perspective to where we are now in the contemporary, oh man, the Tea Party looks like you know a bunch of kindergartens, right? And so the white nationalism is a major problem. So at PHRC, not only are we the top civil rights enforcing agency in theory, we wanna, we're emerging to be that in practice when I first got the calling from God to become the executive director at PHRC nearly four years ago, as soon as I got to uh, Harrisburg, we had learned about uh, an incident where the Ku Klux Klan was placing leaflets on the window shields of uh, vehicles that were outside a movie theater uh, that just had shown the Black Klansmen. We ended up convening what we called a no hate in our state town hall, which was to go to the places where Ku Klux Klan individuals, white nationalists, white supremacists, uh, white agent provocateurs, and white interlopers were to simply say, in dark spaces, we're going to shine a light. And the one that we had in York, we had the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan who actually showed up and wanted to speak. And I allowed him to speak, not because it's a, you know, amendment right, First Amendment, freedom of speech is because I actually saw his humanity. As broken as he was, I still saw him as a human being, flawed. And so he got up and he read his white male dominance manifesto and, you know, um, and, you know, on his way up, people were murmuring. And I simply said, hey, listen, the difference between him and some of you is that he has the courage of his convictions because though a sea of whiteness might have sat in the audience, I didn't, I'm not certain that everybody's there. I don't have a post that people are there for the right reasons. Um, and so, you know, the no hate in our state is important because what we do is we convene panels with like-minded individuals, Native American, Indigenous, Latino, LGBT, Jewish, women, African-Americans and others to speak back to that hate. Uh, race, uh, race dialogue on college campuses, we do that. That's important because we're bringing together black and Jewish students to try to recreate in this moment, the same thing that happened with the civil rights movement, right? Hate is prevalent in the state of Pennsylvania, not just because we say last year we were ranked number eighth in the country among hate groups assembling, but I can honestly say that the people who really do a lot of work of exposing this is the Anti-Defamation League throughout the state.
the Jewish Federation associations. You know, they really highlight a lot of this. When it comes to anti-Semitism in the state, the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, we're in a listening and learning mode. But when it comes to white nationalism, we're creating this concept called the beloved community, which was created by Rabbi Abraham Yahshua Heschel and Martin Luther King. And the beloved community doesn't say the only people that should come in are Democrats or Republicans or you know people who believe in God. The beloved community says, whoever wants to come in, come in. Atheist, agnostic, LGBT, white nationalist, come in. But when you come in, we're gonna show you themes of love. We're gonna speak back to white victimization. When you talk about black on black violence, which is people killing people in close proximity to one another, we're gonna highlight white on white violence. We're gonna hi highlight this whole aspect of white rage and white privilege and white male dominance, but we're gonna do it in love, right? Donald Trump is only an aspect of this democracy, right? And so this new theme that we're working on, and these themes are, are living, breathing organisms, is a theme of unity. For all of the challenges that the state of Pennsylvania has, there are a lot of people who, you can call them allies, accomplices, they're good people working to address systemic structural racism and individual racism and white supremacist behavior. Thank you for that. Moving on, you are co-founder of the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practices Black Men at Penn, which is the first Ivy League black male group of social workers. Tell me a little bit about the goal of this particular group. So getting my master's in social work uh, from University of Penn in 2001, um, along with uh, Derek Felton, uh, Darren Tolliver, uh, Derek Jackson, and Alan Speed, we said, listen, we're untraditional. None of us went to a border school that was a feeder to Ivy League. Uh, Derek Felton uh, is from Mississippi. I'm from North Philly. Darren Tolliver is from West Philly. We won't hold him to that. Alan Speed is from West Philly. We won't hold him to that. Um, and our mentor, Dr. Walter Palmer, uh, everyone knows Dr. Walter Palmer, you know, civil rights icon here in the city of Philadelphia, has taught at Penn for 50 years, uh, you, you know, mentored many of the people that we see today, Shaka Fatah, Dwight Evans, Curtis Jones, uh, the list goes on and on, you know, on all sides of the color line and gender line. He said to us, he said, hey, you all have a unique opportunity. Um, you all graduated uh, same class for the most part. Um, most people leave these institutions, the PWIs, and, and they keep going. Why don't you use and leverage the power of Penn uh, as a conduit for the African-American community? Um, and so we established the Black Men at Penn, a cohort of uh, Black males with PhDs in social work and masters in social work. And we said we wanted to work uh, with Black males. Uh, the same aspect I was telling you about my basketball coach back at Ali High. What if we went into the schools as early as middle school and looked for boys, bright, outstanding young scholars? The same way the coach looks for the tall kid on the first day of school, we're going to look for boys, bright, outstanding young scholars. Teach them the works of Martin Luther King and Ida B. Wells and teach them the works of Cornell West and Bell Hooks. Uh, teach them uh, the works of multiple individuals whose shoulders we stand on. And so we developed the program and our main focus is uh, mentoring youth who have a parent incarcerated in a state or federal prison, doing anti-racism training in urban, suburban, and rural schools. Um, and since 2003, uh, we've also recruited black males uh, to the profession of social work and specifically to the School of Social Policy and Practice 
at the University of Penn. We've done mentoring programs. We have a three-year mentoring program uh, at uh, Sheltonham High School on the hills of the incident that they had at Sheltonham High School a couple of years ago, uh, where the white teacher walked into the classroom and said, stop B-I-C-T-H-ing. Uh, Trump is the president now. And so the school reached out to the black men at Penn. So we've worked in schools all around the country. Um, but the primary thing that we are proud of is that we are a black face in the social work space, which is not a traditional thing. We are social workers. We are social change agents. Uh, the very souls of who we are is committed to really making sure we help our people heal uh, from a therapeutic standpoint. So we've partnered over the past five years with the Soldier of Love Foundation Incorporated. Uh, they are an organization of women who have healed uh, coming out of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and pro bono, we have literally counseled uh, some of the individuals who have been the perpetrators of the violence. We receive no funding from the University of Penn. Uh, we, we write for grants, we get some grants, but a lot of the money that we actually run the agency and the organization with is through our own funding. And so we're excited about some of the things that we're going to be doing. We also give a John Hope Franklin Combat and American Racism Award, uh, the longest standing award at the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Penn to anybody who's fighting uh, against racism. Um, and so we've given it to students on every side of the color line, gender line. Then Vice President Joe Biden's daughter in 2010, Ashley Biden, who graduated from SB2, she received one of our awards. So we have a great relationship there. So I just want to thank you for the opportunity to just talk about all of this stuff. And, you know, Black History, once again, month is American history. Black Men at Penn School of Social Work Incorporated is about making sure that young Black males don't buy into a form of victimization, albeit institutional and systemic and structural racism. And the PHRC, um, people should go on our website, which is uh, www.phrc.pa.gov. Uh, file a complaint if you're a victim of any form of unlawful discrimination. We have a regional office in Pittsburgh. We have one in Harrisburg. We have one in Philadelphia. Uh, and we work in the areas of public accommodation, uh, commercial property, discrimination, and education, uh, and employment, and all forms of unlawful discrimination. Two federal contracts, one with HUD, one with uh, EEOC. And we, we're here to work for the people of the Commonwealth we want to be better at what we do. Chad Dion Lassiter, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. You are a wealth of information, I have to say. Thank you so much for your time and giving us your expertise. We appreciate it on Bridging Philly. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Claiborne Napier family is from Bucks County, and Douglas and Laura's 10-year-old daughter, she wanted to make a movie that depicted a black fairy tale. Well, they were able to do it together. The Rainbow Prince debuted in schools last month, and Sharaday Howard tells us more. 
This week, we're extending the celebration of Black History Month by shining a light on the Rainbow Prince, a modern fairy tale for children of color, inspired by a five-year-old Butts County girl and created by her parents, Doug Claiborne and Laura Napier. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Now, Myra, your daughter, is now 10 years old, and she wanted to address the absence of black and brown heroes and royalty on the big and little screens. And together... You funded and filmed The Rainbow Prince about a brown princess that saves a prince who changes colors according to his mood. This was all her idea, right? Our daughter, Maria Claiborne Napier, um, who is black, and myself and Doug all watch a lot of movies and read a lot of books. She's been reading since she was uh, three or four. And um, when she got to be about five, she said, um, you know, mom, why aren't there any princesses who look like me? Where are the brown princesses? Where are the brown princesses? And Mario always referred to my skin as pink. It really is more pink than white, and hers was brown. And, you know, I explained about black, black being culture and brown skin, but she always said, I'm brown, you're pink. So we call it brown and pink. In any event, she said, where are all the brown princesses? And I said, I know, Maria. And, of course, we watched one that that we could find, and and that that film we had some problems with anyway, because of course the darker brown was was the bad. That, so that really wouldn't do. But we said, okay, where are the brown princesses? They're not around, so we'll have to write. We'll have to write one. And then we started watching more movies, and every movie was where are the people who look like me? We're going to have to make them. Maria and her father and Maria and myself used to, for, for fairy tales at night, change the fairy tales, write our own stories. And we started this um once upon a time, princess or prince, and what if the princess, what color? Okay, I'm not sorry, I'm not very eloquent. I'll try to do this. Yeah, so we started doing a we started doing a fairy tale one day, and I sort of had the idea for this fairy tale and started telling it. And Mari said, "What if the in real life what happened was we started writing a a, a, a storybook with a brown princess." who saves the prince. It was very important what that the princess was empowered, that she is brown and looked like Maria, and she saved the prince. And I did ask Maria what color should the prince be, and she said he should change colors based on his feelings. And that was how Rainbow became Rainbow. And we both decided that his, his happy color had to be brown because brown is a good, positive color. And we did not see that in any of the in any of the fairy tales, in any of the movies, the bad guy was always brown. The stepmom was always dark and bad. And so we wanted to flip the narrative completely. And that's how this came about. Now, Doug, why did you get involved as a producer? You have a long resume. You've done so much work in the industry. Why was this important for you to do? Oh, wow. Well, I've been producing films for 40 years. And I, uh, I don't know, 10 years or so ago, maybe more, I, I decided I wanted to do something different. I want to do smaller projects, more, more meaningful, more emotional. And uh, I just fell in love with this idea that they had. And I wanted to support my daughter and my partner. Go ahead. So she had a, she had a, something came to her. Uh, and, and I just, I, you know, I love the idea and I love what they were doing. And I wanted to support Maya and I wanted to support this whole idea about a magical prince uh, that changed his colors of the students. I thought it was great. And they actually wrote a feature feature film script. And I said, you know, that's going to take forever to get made. Why don't you make it a short film? And you two have done so many projects together, but this one in particular was a necessity. 
this. But sorry, in the, in the name of female empowerment, because I am because I am the, the wife of, of you know this big producer, and I've been doing you know we did all off Broadway play, but I have brought a lot of these projects that are about social justice, racial equity initially. Um, to, to my husband and inducted him, and I always keep playing him. This will be the last one that you won't get paid for. And um, I've got five so, projects. So in, in all transparency, the play I brought to him, my documentary, I, I was inducted to do in New Mexico, and the, the play for Darfur. And Doug jumps in and full full on. And now this project, I came to Doug and we we had this feature and decided to do it as a short. I said this has to get out now in schools. And we were looking at ways to get funding. And I went to Doug and I said, Doug, what could we do it for as a short film? Like how much would it cost? Because I need to raise this money. And from that moment on, and we said we had to do it as a nonprofit so we could give it to the schools. And at that, at that moment, Doug became a producer of the project. So I, I came to him and said, okay, if I make this as a short, how can we get this made? What, what, how much do we need? And because um, we need to give it to the schools and we need to do it now. And and Doug, of course, was like, well. And you can see by my resume, I had a lot of short film experience. So he, <laughs> I, I, you know, he, he, and, and he came on and, and became the producer and put five years into it. And, you know, he's got his heart in the right place. <laughs> that's how it happened. So this was really a labor of love for the entire family. It took multiple years to make and even more favors from friends and family. But it all came together and you got it made. How'd you make that happen? Uh, it took five years to make it, uh, you know, from roughly five years. But you had a purpose for this film. It wasn't just for your family. This was about a legacy. This was about setting a stage for something new, a new model to be made. And uh, we made it with without compensation because we wanted to give it to kids. We wanted to see it in classrooms. We wanted to be able to, you know, wanted to see kids be able to talk about their differences and what they had in common and, and to just be able to talk. And we wanted to hear them talk. And uh, we wanted to start that momentum going, be a part of that. And we wanted kids to, like Maya to be able to see themselves up on screen and see these new models. So... That's it. And she asked, how much do you want to give the... the I don't... I, yeah, it's very, me, very it's low a, budget for, for films that has... It is, it is, it's on IMDb, so you could look it up. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very low budget. And the crew actually worked yeah. a, 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 for, for, for about half deferred. Yeah. So um, it's ultra low budget project. The crew cast, was half deferred and half, half paid. And, but, you know, they were all... Everybody was working at, like, minimum wage, so... And the cast all worked for minimum, and of course we worked for nothing. <laughs> Another for nothing project for my life. And now um, we work for looking love. for them. I teach in my off time, so we can as this done. So, but we did it for yes. The two reasons to get it into schools, to get kids talking, to get heroes who look like Maria up on screen. So you're setting a new precedent, a new model, and your daughter was a major part of this. This was her idea. Can you tell me how important it is for her to have something like this to look to, for other children to have this to look to? Can I speak first? Please. <laughs> we, we, we also did this as a fairy tale because fairy tales stay with kids. And all kids need new models, okay? All kids, pink skin, brown skin, red skin, orange skin, they need to see new models. And we need the brown heroes. We need the brown and black heroes 
on screen. We need them in the media. We need all kids need to see these heroes because this is our world. And rainbows are what our world is made of. And we need that to thrive, to survive, to live together. And And Doug, you started to tear up earlier because this meant so much to you. There was a point in which you said this made it all worth it. What was that moment? I'll just tell you one of the great moments. We, we, you know, this is a COVID movie, right? So we spent a week with the key cast and crew uh, at a university where we shot the castle and uh, in, basically in seclusion for a week before the movie. So we knew that everybody was safe. And then the week of shooting, the same, we're all together. And during the week, we had food brought in, you had a caterer and all that stuff. And, uh, we lived in the dorms. We lived in the dorms at Arcadia, Arcadia University, right? And uh, every morning, somebody seemed like would break down in tears. And one one of our cast members broke down one morning in tears and said, "Oh, if if," and she was one of the African American cast members. And, it wasn't our and, cast member, but it was somebody else. And she said, "You know, only if I'd have only had this as a little girl." And it just brought tears to my eyes because I remember, I'm 75, but I remember when I was five years old and my grandfather used to tell me bedtime stories and they were fairy tales. So I know how important fairy tales are for kids. So, you know, you're right. It is a legacy and it is forever. That's why we make movies. And he said there's a sense of urgency in a way as well. There is a real need for it right now. And, and I will, I'll, I'll say that when we started this and, you know, it's one day at a time because it's been such a, a passion project and so challenging, we, we did it to, to get new models out there now. However, Maria is, the cast first said, we, we should do this as a series. We need to do more films. And Maria came to me after we finished filming. Maria is now 10. And she said, Mom, let's start writing the next one. And Maria and I are now writing the next one. And she calls them fairy tale flips. So that's the series. <laughs> uh, so we, we're, there will be hope. I'm hoping that there will be more. And this, but, but this in itself is, is a legacy because it is a fairy tale for all of us and shows our world. And it's about the real world. This is what the real world looks like. How important is it for you to make sure that your daughter gets a sense of that reality, a sense of her place in it? And it's not just about the future. It's also about telling the real history. I'm assuming that's why you did the movie. Positive models, positive representation of brown-skinned people, heroes, princesses, you know, queens. And what better time than Black History Month? All of this is culminating five years of your hard work, your blood, sweat, your tears, and it's Black History Month and you're debuting that film in schools. Your daughter, her friends, and classmates are now watching The Rainbow Prince. After five years, Maya came to us yesterday and she said, guess what, Dad? I said, what? She goes, we're going to see our movie in the classroom tomorrow. So... Today was the day they saw her movie in her classroom that the teacher showed it to her. And we got this email from the teacher saying, oh, the kids love the movie and they were thrilled and they were clapping the whole time because like half of school was in the movie. Um, um, But Maya's, that was her day where she saw herself on the screen in color. It was great. So it's a great day. And and we approached, it's actually the first uh, school, but 
we approached them to show it to the whole school for Black History Month because I was trying to find a way that they couldn't say no. And the principal came back and said, well, we're going to give it to the younger kids, teachers, and then they can show it. And I said, could you at least show it in Maria's classroom? Because it would be really important for her to see this with her classmates and have all everybody talk about it. And um, so her teacher showed it today. She got to see so you said you were trying to do this so that they could not say no. So clearly you weren't backing down. This was bigger than you and your family. <laughs> but um, I don't know. That's a that's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> well, I could I could answer that quickly. Right. I, I don't actually think it's well. So I'm sorry. No, no, no. But I don't think it's tough because when when we look at I've also very if you notice you, uh, you may not have um, seen the film yet but there's a reference to Princess Amina who was a warrior amazing I mean led armies she also became a queen and there's a reference to her when the mother and daughter are starting to tell the story well initially I had about five references to African princesses and queens and the film just got too long and didactic so one thing that I have tried to do with Maria is is give her history, which is more than slavery and oppression, because that is not the history of the African-American people, and it's not the history of Black people. And so we have tried to share not only the heroes in this country, not only, you know, the Maya Angelou's and the, and the um, Malcolm X's and the, and the Martin Luther King, who everybody knows. We've taught, we've learned about many heroes, um, Fannie Lou Hammer and if this little light of mine is spotlighted in this film. But in any event, it, it was very important that she learn about her history in terms of the princesses and, and queens and the majestic culture of Africa, you know, before the imperialists, before the, the slave trade. And there, and there was a, a fabulous, fabulous history of centuries of queens and, and, and kings and, and princesses and inventions and, agriculture and this is this is profound and they do not get this in the school so yes we need crt definitely and we definitely need to learn about princesses and queens and the positive history of africans before slavery so for me it is profound that it happened to finish on black history month and we could we got lucky. We could do our kickoff <laughs> educational screening in Black History Month and remind children, even though there's one princess named in the film, that there are many. And on that note, thank you so much for sharing your time, your family, and your film with us. Our pleasure. Um, thank you. If you'd like to learn more or even get a peek at the short film, email rainbowprince at gmail.com for more information. I'm Charity Howard with this week's Newsmaker. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. 
What up, it's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. We're transitioning out of Black History Month and right into Women's History Month. So throughout March, we'll be sharing some stories of some amazing local women and their contributions to history in our communities in Philadelphia and beyond. That being said, our Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is a West Philly native, best-selling author, educator, and activist, Lorraine Carey. She's bridging Philly through the craft of writing and storytelling, using that to connect our youth and future generations to history and legacies. Ms. Carey, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Now, I know that you have a very diverse career background, right? Tell us about your path to becoming an author and playwright. I did news magazines at the beginning of my career, uh, and I also have done teaching. So throughout my career, I've done writing and teaching. So I did time to Newsweek, uh, to TV Guide as an editor, so sort of mass market accessible. I love accessible. I love for the people I write about to be able to read what I write. That matters a lot to me. And it carried over into writing uh, a memoir about going to boarding school, um, three novels, sort of one based in history, uh, in a, a runaway based on a real runaway case of a woman who came through Philadelphia. That's a price for child. One looking at um, sort of the 20s and 30s and, and lynching as a, as a way to enforce um, the, the uh, Black subjectivity, you know, as a way to, to put a, seal, uh, a low ceiling on Black advancement with, with terror that was... Um, if not state-sponsored, certainly state-approved. Um, I did a girlfriend novel, just because you can't always write. <laughs> and also, most recently, a, um, a, a memoir about taking care of my grandmother at the end of her life called Lady Sitting that is about a life-death family. So that's that's my, my writing stuff that... While my children were young and at home, I wrote books. I love books, of course, but but also you can get up at 4.30 in the morning and do them by yourself. What I couldn't do were performance-based forms that, where you have to collaborate with people, go to rehearsals, stay late, go to... So I just have started writing those in the last five years, which is... Um, I started with plays. And this My General Tubman was the first uh, one. Um, and I'm also writing opera uh, libretti. I've always loved opera. But. One of your more recent events was at the African American Museum, honoring the legacy of Harriet Tubman. This month is being commemorated as her 200th birthday. Tell us about your involvement in preserving her legacy. You know, it was, it's so beautiful to watch this interconnection there. We have an understanding that African-American or the African diaspora understands time, past, present, and future as interconnected. For me, that's at the heart of my play, My General Tubman, is that moving through. Young people understand that as well. So to have at the African-American Museum, students from Gerard College, uh, my own students from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as some um, African-American museum uh, 
older folks, to have them there to watch bits that Arden Theater beautifully put together and brought in actors, um, Aaron Bell, uh, Sarah uh, Glico, Glico, and Morgan Sharice Hall to play these scenes, to watch this happen with the young people and then ask them as well as people outside, you know, in virtual land to give toasts to Tubman really did help connect Tubman and her activism to the work of Philadelphia voting youth activists today. You know that Harriet Tubman that we all know is the Underground Railroad, but she lived into her 90s. She lived to 1913. She was part of the suffrage movement. And even when white American suffrage groups, um, you know, tried to move black people out, she, she was undaunted. I mean, rules didn't daunt her, right? She kept on going, understanding that she as a black woman, as a uh, a Civil War spy, as the person who had commanded battleships in the Civil War, as someone who had gotten through, lived a life of poverty, and still she knew, um, she knew that she should vote. She knew that she needed to have a say, so she kept at it. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that, voting rights. I know that you have done your own sort of activism in this space. You started an organization, Vote That John. What led to that? Both that John started because my own students who were writing for publication on a, a wonderful publication online called Safe Kid Stories, after the Parkland, uh, Florida shooting, after the March for Our Lives, when my students wrote about that, they then came into class and said to me, what you need to be doing is have us focus on voting. That is after the March for Our Lives that youth has to vote. That's what my, my bossy students told me. And of course they were right. That summer, I met with a few of those students um, and other young people all summer to think about what kind of group we could create. Vote That John is specifically working to be a platform uh, to amplify, spread information, um, write about, tweet about, Instagram about, TikTok about the work of, of youth activists. In the summer of 2020, uh, through a wonderful uh, donor, we were able to have a summer program of 20 interns, high school and college. Um, we don't always have that though. And my students at Penn um, write things, but are not, I don't have an army of kids out on the, on the ground. So we connect with primarily, um, other youth activist groups, the most active being PA Youth Vote, um, sort of out of Central High School with Tom Quinn. We've also worked with My School Votes, we've, uh, lots of others. But we sort of, the idea is we want to take what they do and write about it. Here's the thing. When you're an activist, you are so busy doing the thing 
And now you do a lot of work with students and youth these days. So let's talk a little bit about how you found yourself in this space of really empowering, advocating, and writing for young minds. What I'm doing is not just teaching lessons. What I'm trying to do is share the experience, right? So as opposed to, so it's a, it's a fairy tale rather than a fable. Uh, thinking about the stories that I told my own children where they have agency to make sure they have the children, have, the, the people in the story have agency so that the young people are not getting stories like we often give them in school district approved books, which is stories where the African-American people are observed by someone else. So you're doing exactly what Du Bois says we shouldn't do, which is look on in amused pity and, in, you know, with pity and contempt. So they looked on with pity. Well, I didn't want my kids reading that. So I told them stories where people got themselves up. Young people got up, hid under a hotel, climbed up in a tree, waited for this boat to come, hid under, like, put a turp, to put a sack over themselves, went in the bottom, like all those things where they did it themselves because I wanted those children to imagine. If you can't feel it, you can't, you can't know it. So that, that's what I'm t- trying to do with children's stories. The spiritual, intellectual, vocational refreshment of working with young people in both that John. I mean, just watching their, and, and being able to support them, to support them to create something adequate to their needs. So I love this coming of age, this civic coming of age. It feels to me that um, we have not adequately told them that this voting business, and not just voting, but getting, getting a leg into the political life of the country will allow them to influence the decisions we're making that will influence their lives 20 years from now. What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm very excited to be writing another play uh, and working on um, that with Arden Theater. It's a play based on um, the Lady Sitting memoir about taking care of, uh, of our grandmother. And it really is a play about end of life, caregiving, love, Fear, big fear, big fear. Um, and, and, and us facing work, I mean, the thing we always have in our lives every day is death. So I'm excited about that. Um, hoping to begin a workshop sometime this year with that. To keep up with Ms. Carey and her latest projects, you can visit her website, LorraineCarey.com. You can also find her on social media using her name. If you're interested in learning more about the organization Vote That John, you can find them on Instagram or Twitter at Vote That John. As always, I'm Antoinette Lee. If you know a family rising changemaker we should highlight next, you can find me on Twitter at ARLeeOnAir. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.